Okay, we got ourselves another episode of the Steve Laidlaw podcast. We've been wrapping up the NHL draft. Love the NHL draft. And today we are pleased to be joined by Will Scouch from Scouching. He does fantastic work. He's a repeat guest and I just love what he has to offer. So Will, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing all right, Steve. How are you? I'm spectacular. I've, I've got a nice, nice cup of tea here with me today. We're, mm. we're recording in the evening, so caffeine-free at this point. Um, I'm wondering, Will, like you do this mega blowout draft day stream alongside the NHL draft. Oh, yeah. And those are fantastic. I haven't dove into it yet because I like to watch the draft in real time. And, but I'm just wondering, like, what does that draft day routine look like for you? Oh, man. Uh, well, it's kind of a slow build. I mean, I kind of, a big part of it is always IT, basically. So making sure everything's set up properly. You know, it, it, these things, for me, 95% of the work is done by the time I'm sort of prepping for the live stream. And you know, I guess the big thing for me is being ready for curveballs uh, and being ready for basically anything that can come down the pipe, you know. Um, so a lot of that depends on putting in the work and really not leaving any stone unturned going into the draft. Um, that doesn't mean that it's free of surprises, but it's still something where, you know, a big part of it is getting sure, making sure the technology is all set up properly, making sure that all the data that I want tracked is done. You know, for me, the last little bit was a few guys that were stragglers that I hadn't had a look at in a while or hadn't had any data on, just that I wanted to circle back on and take a look at. Um, and so I, I, I'm, I, I, most of the work is done well in advance, but again, a lot of it is also mental preparedness. The fact that I was going to be streaming on the internet for three hours one day and then what turned out to be about eight hours the next day. Uh, it was a bit much, but a lot of it comes down to just how prepared you are beforehand, because you got to be ready for pretty much anything, especially with regards to the NHL draft. The technical aspect of that, that just, it reminded me of when I was hosting parties in high school and I would go around the house and I would like take down every <laughs> single item that could get destroyed. And I had this checklist, I would write everything down, like where, where it was supposed to be and all this stuff. And in today's day and age, you would go, you would take pictures of everything so that you could go back right. to the photos and you put everything back <laughs> in your place. Kids at home, take, take notes. Um, <laughs> this is how it's done. Uh, and then you, you cross off all the lists, but the mental preparedness, how do you go about preparing yourself to be on for that long because I find that I have a very difficult time being on for mm -hmm. that amount of time and I wonder how do you what's your process for mentally preparing well a big part of it for me is that this stuff on the whole all the work that I do to put in doesn't really feel like work like it's just sort of something that is sort of almost you kind of compile the information in your brain and just kind of file it away. A big thing that is unique, I think, for the live aspect, especially with the YouTube platform, is a lot of what drives what I'm doing comes from people that aren't me. So people's questions are what drove a lot of discussion. Um, you know, there was a time on the YouTube channel where a long for a long time where 
there was a lot of me putting in the work to do show prep for live streams. And once that kind of went away and I was much more able to let the audience kind of drive the conversation, all I really had to do was watch the games, track the data, you know, and just go from there. And I think that the, the other thing that really helps is that I think I had a decent enough sample of data on about three rounds worth of players. Not all of them were drafted, but I still felt comfortable enough with that data because, you know, you watch the games and yeah, you can have an opinion on, on the player that you're watching in those games. But for me, I leave like remnants of what I've seen in the data. So, you know, the data that I have kind of tries to encapsulate and reinforce or counter, I guess, what my eyes are seeing. So it kind of, the data brings back a lot of talking points that are there. You know, you can, you can demonstrably show players who are better in transition than others. You can demonstrably show the case for say, Jack Quinn going over Marco Rossi. You know, you can demonstrably show different factors about players that kind of go along with what you're seeing. And then if the situation requires it, I can circle back and go, yeah, all the data shows this, but then there's this extra context that can maybe make the player overperform what their analytics are showing or perhaps underperform. You know, there's a lot of factors that go in. So for that, I mean, that that's kind of the big, uh, the big side of, of where that comes from. It's more about having the data, trusting it while also having the context that you add with your eyes uh, and then letting the audience kind of drive the bus a bit more because that makes your life a lot easier because then it keeps you on your toes. But also if you, you know, if you have that data to back you up, you're in a much better position. There are players where I didn't have any data that went in the first round, for example. And then I kind of had to, you know, not scramble, but just kind of rely on, on less empirical evidence. But all of these players were still players that I've seen quite a few times this year. So, you know, and I tried to make that apparent. Um, because obviously I'm not going to have good information on 217 kids and a bunch of the guys I tracked when undrafted. But yeah, so it's a lot of the work and the tracking and data that goes into the draft stream. And then the day of, I just hope that things fall about as expected and that the audience kind of keeps me on my toes enough, you know, whether they're trying to poke holes in my work or not. Um, I, I welcome it all. So it, it kind of all factors in and, and it, I guess it kind of comes naturally after doing live streams every week as well for the whole year. Triggered this dumb joke in my brain. When does, uh, <laughs> when does a, a dad joke become a dad joke? When the, what, oh man, is it something about when the dad becomes a, when the man becomes a parent or something? Yeah. It's when um, it becomes a parent. Yeah. There you go. There you go. <laughs> oh boy. Yeah. Yeah. Oh boy. Okay. Uh, hopefully that one keeps getting regurgitated. I can't wait to throw it at my dad. Who? Uh, yeah, for yeah. sure. Do it up. <laughs> um, um, so I'm wondering, uh, based on your data and and what you scouted this year, who absolutely knocked it out of the park for you? It's. That's a good question. I mean, the I think it was weird because a, a few teams, I think, had really good drafts. I think a few teams had not so great drafts, but there was a ton of teams that I think were kind of all over the place. Like some picks were done well, some, you know, like, and that's typical, I guess, but it felt like quite a few teams were finding value in certain areas and then 
so sort of ignoring value in multiple other areas. And I think a lot of good players not only slipped towards the end of the draft, but went undrafted. But looking at teams that I think had a good night, I mean, the names that come to mind immediately are guys like San Jose, LA, Minnesota, Toronto, and I really like Winnipeg's draft as well. So those are the five that I would categorize as winners. I know a lot of people are talking about Carolina, but I mean, I, I still look at San Jose, Toronto, LA, Minnesota and Winnipeg is sort of the five teams that I would really pay attention to at least when you look at it as they only had x amount of picks and here's the amount of value that I think they extracted you know uh, a team like Carolina had a bazillion picks and you kind of hope that they had a a couple of players but I put Toronto on that list and not Carolina because I look at what Toronto did in total on draft day and I think they did a great job I mean that we can start there I mean the, the the biggest thing to me was trading 44th overall to get 59 and 64 And to me, they added two players that I think today are better players than Tyler Clevin is. And and Ronnie Hirvonen and Topi Nimala, I think, are very good NHL prospects. I mean, I had both of those guys either in the first round or just barely outside of it. And so for me, I mean, and I didn't have Tyler Clevin ranked. So I guess time will tell. But to get those players after Rodion Amirov, and those are your first three picks off the board, and you're not a team that's in the basement, that that's a pretty good draft right away. I mean, of Chinnikov, they traded up to get him at 137. I think that's a great swing to take. I think he's got talent, but you got to be patient. And if he turns out to be nothing, you you used a 137th overall pick on him. So whatever. And then VT Mietinen was a no-brainer. He shouldn't have been available at 168. And he's a talented player who has been playing extremely well for two straight seasons. And I expect him to be good in college. Um, and the rest of them, I mean, are big question marks to me, but... I don't mind the swing on Axel Rindell. I don't mind Artur Akhtiyamov. I don't mind Joe Miller. The rest of the guys I probably wouldn't have pushed for, but I, I think Wyatt Shingathi is a fine player. And and if the Toronto Maple Leafs come out of this draft, I, I think that they'll end up with at least three NHL players. And if not three, then maybe a fourth in one of Avchinikov, Mietinen, Rindell, uh, maybe even a Vilnov or a Joe Miller. I'm not sure, but... I think they were the team that had a lot of picks and extracted a lot of value. But San Jose, I thought, was the team that just every pick, one after the other, was just a banger. Like, just a ton of value, I think, they got. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if they ended up with five players come out of this draft uh, based on where they were picking. And and so the, the those other teams, I think, did a great job. But I think San Jose and Toronto are up there. Winnipeg is another great one. I, I thought they only had four picks. But again, I, I think that there's a world where not only their first two picks are NHL players, but I think Anton Johannesson, assuming some things develop for him and they come along at a pretty high rate, Johannesson could be a really, really good pickup at 133. I really liked what he showed last year. So it's a combination of teams that didn't have a lot of picks, but got a lot of value. And then teams that had a lot more picks and still extracted quite a lot of value through even for San Jose, like getting Brandon Coe at 98th overall is hilarious to me so joel henderson described that as uh, unfair it is unfair it, it really <laughs> is i mean it is i mean brandon co is just not just not a fourth round prospect he, he flat out is not i don't think i think it's i think it's maybe fair to everyone but uh the arizona coyotes who didn't have a pick <laughs> true <laughs> i could see that yes um do you put any thought into where these players were drafted in terms of how their development process might go 
to kind of file that stuff away um, after the fact? I, I mean, the way I kind of view setting them up for a developmental path is it's kind of, you, you really have to do it individually. I mean, I don't look at teams drafting like Rodion Amirov at 15th overall. I don't think just because he went 15th overall, that accelerates his trajectory to the NHL. I think, you know, there are certain players where I think the trajectory is kind of mapped out in advance, especially North American players. Like I look at Jamie Drysdale and go, I don't think he's NHL ready now might be NHL ready after this season, but I don't, I don't expect it, but then you're kind of forcing him into the AHL after that point. And then if he's, if he's not NHL ready, so you kind of know what the developmental path is there. Whereas with someone like, say, uh, I don't know, I'm looking at my list here, like Samuel Knazko to Columbus, he's playing at the under 20 level. He got a couple of preseason games in Finland at the men's league level. He's probably going to be a guy that bounces back and forth from the men's league to the under 20 level you know, maybe he comes over to the CHL import draft. He has more options. And then when he's, you know, you can also have him over in Europe for three seasons instead of two seasons in junior. And then you're expecting him to cross over to North America. So to me, that adds value in a different way where you have, you know, you can take a European player and have a different sort of developmental pathway. They also get to stay at home. They get to play with a team that they've played with for in some situations, a decade. And so, they're probably much more comfortable in that scenario. And, and maybe the CHL doesn't really have that luxury. Um, so I, I always look at Europe as a good option in terms of looking at a developmental pathway. But I mean, North American players, I mean, the, the, the pathway is not terrible either. I mean, two more years than junior, you hope that the players you're drafting are either NHL ready at the end of that point, or you see a clear trajectory to the NHL, whether it's a year in the AHL or something like that. I think where you kind of find some trouble is where you draft guys in the CHL who are third line CHL players. And you hope that in the next two years, they start hitting other gears and start starting to dominate there. And you can then start to build that trajectory. I, I don't, I don't think I subscribe to that because at the end of that, at the end of those two years, you're kind of going, all right, I guess he's got to be ready for the AHL at this point, or we're just not going to sign him. So Europe, I think is a good example. College is another one where you get, a little bit more runway to work with and a little bit more time just to let the player develop and not have the pressure of like the ticking clock before you're, you know, either signed to an ELC or not. So I think it depends, but in terms of draft slot, I don't, I don't really think about it that much. Like if there's a player who's European drafted, you know, like if Lucas Raymond is in, is in Sweden for three more seasons, some people might find that concerning, but I don't really see a problem with it if Detroit doesn't really have the role for him where he can play a lot of minutes in the NHL yet. I think he'll be in the NHL before then, but you know, it's not something I personally think about a ton. Okay. You mentioned something there with uh, players ending up as like starting out as third liners when they're drafted. And it made me think of what has so often happened with London Knights prospects where they don't have the highlight like the, the numbers aren't popping in their draft season. And then all of a sudden they do bust out because they have this, uh, they have this track record of really riding their older players. And then like we, we've seen it with plenty of prospects, they bust out. So Luca Evangelista drafted by Nashville in the second round. I wonder if that's not a guy who his numbers pop a little bit after this draft, or was he someone who got a lot more run already? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I haven't, I didn't actually get around to tracking Luke Evangelista this year. I 
think from what I've seen of him, I mean, I think he could be an NHL player one day, at least a contributor. I don't know about, you know, an extremely high end NHL player, but I think he's fine. And I, I like his skill. He's got offensive talent. Um, you know, his two-way game, I think needs some work. And I think that's going to be a primary area of improvement. I mean, I'm just looking at his ice time now and it, 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 at the beginning of the year, it was a little bit limited, but towards the end, you're looking at more 18, 19, 20 minutes total. So, you know, he was playing pretty significant minutes for a forward. Um, it fluctuated a little bit here and there, but, uh, you know, all things being considered, I think, I think, I think Evangelist is a guy who certainly will be a very talented junior player. I think, you know, I have questions about his pace translating to the NHL, but that's something you could work on, I guess. Um, really slippery skill. I, I, I probably wouldn't have picked him where he went. I had him ranked more towards the end of the second round, but I mean, it, it's not the worst pick at that slot. I mean, I'm looking at names that were still available on the board that went soon after. Like, could you make the case for Evangelist over Jan Mishak? I think you could. I wouldn't have done it, but I think Mishak is too much of a question mark and Evangelista might be a bit more of a, of a solidifier pick. Teddy Niederbach went soon after that. Maybe he might've been a guy I look at. Um, you know, Emil Andre was available, but I can also see the argument why you might go for something a little bit closer to home, a little bit, you know, uh, a little bit more projectable, I guess you could say, you know, a smaller skilled winger that does show demonstrable skill and does show an ability to produce at even strength. That's absolutely valuable. Um, a lot of his points were secondary assists, but he was scoring a lot of even strength. And on paper, at least, the big negative for me is that his net difference in goals against when he was on the ice was really, really high. So that's a guy where he's going to need to, one way or the other, chip in a little bit more to prevent pucks from going in, in his own end because he is a pretty good offensive catalyst. So he's a guy who I certainly think could hit another gear in junior. You hope he does. Um, and And yeah, I mean at the time might've been a bit high for my liking, but he's a, he's an interesting pickup for sure. What about the rest of Nashville's draft? How do you think they did on the whole? I think they did fine. I mean, they, they have an interesting group of players that they drafted. I mean, I, I, I wasn't sure what they saw in a guy like Luke Prokop to put him that high. I mean, I think there's, there's a, I think the case that they're making is, you know, here's a really big defenseman who chips in offensively pretty well. And he's a, he's a good skater for his size. Let's see what happens with him. You know, Nashville has been very good at taking defenders who are, will see players, I would call them and turning them into something. David Ferentz comes to mind as the most recent example. Uh, yeah. Semyon Chistikov is starting to figure things out a little bit at the KHL level from what I remember. Um, Luke Prokop is an interesting pickup for sure. I mean, Adam Willsby, I wouldn't have picked him personally unless it was the sixth or seventh round, but I guess if they, they see his shiftiness and his offensive production as something that they like, then sure you could take the chance on him, but that was high for me. But I mean, at the same time, 65 picks later, they take Luke Reed and Luke Reed at 101 would be something that I would see as logical. I think that guy is another one of those similar to pro cop kind of guys, you know, really good skater, really good skill with his hands, but hasn't been able to like cook up a whole lot with it very much over the course of the season, decent offensive involvement, I would say, but underwhelming considering how good Chicago was. But I, I really like what Luke Reed brings to the table in terms of potential. And at 166th, that's no problem to me. I mean, he should have been gone earlier. And if say he had gone at 101 and they got Willsby at 166, I would probably be less concerned. So 
time will tell, I suppose. And then Fontaine and McLean, I've seen McLean play just a little bit. I don't know what it was that drew the Predators to him, but I mean, I guess I'm more than happy to be wrong. And Gunnar Wolf Fontaine is a guy who's caught my attention a little bit here and there uh, when I've seen Chicago play. He's a hardworking player. He produces well. I think he was worth a draft pick at some point in the draft. Uh, so I'm glad they took a flyer at 202. I don't expect huge things out of Fontaine for the for the rest of his career, but I, I, I think I, I he's a guy who's caught my eye a few times in Chicago, and he's one of those guys where uh, there's a word that I should think of, of for it, but you're kind of watching someone else, and once in a while you'll see a player do something that impresses you, and you go, who's that guy? And it turns out to be the same player a few times in a row. Like That's usually a good sign, and that's a player where Fontaine, in, in the odd situation, has done that for me. Um, so... I'm curious. I think overall they did fine. I think Evangelista will be a fine complimentary offensive player. Prokop is an interesting project. So is Luke Reed and the rest. I don't know. We'll see. So you mentioned those players who you're trying to watch someone else and they capture your attention. Maybe, maybe you call them glitter players. I was just thinking about things <laughs> that just, just catch your eye out of the Yeah, corner. I can see that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we'll workshop it. Uh, at yeah. the top of their draft, Nashville, they take the goalie and they've failed on a couple of first round goalies in their franchise history. But I, I don't know that Brian Finley's body falling apart before he ever makes it to the pros is, is necessarily uh, tells us anything about what's going to happen with uh, Yaroslav Askarov. But this team, the last time they developed a forward in-house was 2014 when they got Kevin Fiala and Victor Arvidsson. I think they're just yep. dying to, to get a forward and they opted for the goalie. And now they've got, mm-hmm. I mean, the, the pipeline continues to churn for them, but that's also, it does the pipeline still exist there when your goalie coach and your head, your longtime head coach have moved on to another franchise. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. I went through all of that talking and completely forgot that Askarov went 11th. I I, I filtered my my prospect tracking sheet for Nashville Predators picks, but I forgot that that sheet only contained skaters. So yes, uh, Yaroslav Askarov. I mean, I thought that Nashville would be an interesting place for him to land. I'm a believer in him. I think he's the real deal. I really like what he brings to the game. You know, there's there's... A maturity to him there's an athleticism to him he's already in the khl and stopping pucks he stopped pucks against men last year and, and didn't look out of place doing it i i i think he's legit and to me i see the calculus as to why you would draft him at 11 instead of say anton lundell or a seth jarvis or a rodion amirov i mean i see it as you have the chance to land a franchise goaltender a guy who's going to start every single, well, not every single game, but the majority of your games for a long time. And even if you swing and miss on that at 11th overall, it, it would sting a little bit. And I think Nashville is sort of teetering on the edge of, you know, really having some issues with their NHL success. But I mean, I look at the pick of Yaroslav Askarov and go, that's a, that's a player where if it works out, it makes your life way easier for a very, very long time. And the, the other guys they could have picked there, Anton Lindell, maybe a good, you know, should be a good middle six player. Seth Jarvis, a good second line scorer, I would say. Maybe first line if he hits another gear in his game. Holloway, Amirov, I think they'll be complementary players that will help. But 
that won't sort of help change the trajectory of the Nashville Predators. And if the Predators get something that really changes their trajectory out of Askarov, or at least makes a rebuild a lot less painful, then you've won that pick. So you, it's a question where I don't think there's a right answer. There's no right answer as to like where Askarov went. But for me, like I had him ranked pretty high at ninth. I think there's any reason, I think there's all the reason in the world for him to be a guy that enters the discussion after that top 10 group goes off the board. Like I would have had a hard time picking Askarov over someone like Marco Rossi or Cole Perfetti. Um, But as soon as those guys were off the board and it was down to like Anton Lundell, would I have taken him over Askarov? Well, probably not. Uh, Seth Jarvis, I probably would still take the gamble on the goalie, you know, And, and I think that the Predators will, you know, they're not a rebuilding team. So I think they're going to have lots of time if they do. And when they do hit that, that sort of situation, they'll have plenty of time to draft lots and lots of skaters up front. And I think that especially with their defense, they've done a really good job developing defensemen. And I think that's going to continue with guys like David Ference on the way. I do like the tools that Semyon Shistikov has. There's probably more that I'm forgetting off the top of my head, but, you know, Askarov, it's kind of a, it's kind of a weird draft. It's a weird year anyway. You may as well take a swing on the guy, the goalie that's already playing against men and, and saving pucks and seeing what happens. Cause I think he's legit and, and we'll see what happens. Yeah. My concern with the pick is I don't know that their defense is going to be what it is now by the time he comes over. And I wonder if you didn't, I, I, the reality is no one has more equity with a franchise than David Poyle does, right? <laughs> yes. So if, if anyone was going to be able to take the big swing, it was going to be him. I just, I mean, Askarov could be the starting piece for the next era of this franchise. And maybe they have to go into a little bit of a tank. And him, if it takes longer for him to come over because he signs a few KHL contracts along the way then so be it and if you don't see him till he's 23 24 and you have to go through a little bit of a rebuild but you're starting to build up by the time he comes over then it could time itself well like Igor Shesterkin coming over for the Rangers for sure um so moving on here you mentioned the Minnesota Wild as a team whose draft you really liked I've gone as far as to say, I think they had one of the absolute best drafts. And I think that like, I don't know what Bill Guerin's ultimate vision for this team is, but I really feel like this team could be trending away from that identity of one where they're not all that offensive. They actually, they were like the 13th highest scoring team in the league this season, kind of, under the radar and if it wasn't for underwhelming goaltending and maybe maybe the goaltending wasn't actually that underwhelming and there's there's some chicanery going on with uh with expected goals models and stuff like that where they've probably been giving up stronger chances than what the expected goals are actually showing but the reality is the goalies terrible numbers anyways and Otherwise, this has been graded out as a strong defensive team. Anyways, I think they're they're trending towards being this this fantastic offensive team, and I think Rossi is trending towards being a fifty five point centerman right out of the gates next season, whenever that happens. Yeah, I I loved the Minnesota Wilds draft. I mean, it seems like you know it, it seems like Judd Brackett and his influence is very sort of 
I mean, it might just be me being, uh, I forget what the fallacy is called, but when you see patterns that aren't really there, I mean, it seems like he kind of taps into what I kind of look for, at least for forwards. I, I, I mean, Marco Rossi at nine to me is larceny. I, I think he could be a guy that when you look at the Minnesota wild roster, I, I can't remember who pointed this out to me, um, but you look down the middle of that team and I go, would I tell Marco Rossi that the expectations for him are basically zero and just go out and learn how to play NHL hockey. Would I put him in the NHL this year and say, look, if it isn't going your way, don't sweat it. You're just out here to learn and we're probably going to suck. But the goal is to compete and learn to play and, and work on your skating and all these things, but you're better served here than going to Europe or whatever he is going to do otherwise. Um, I don't think that many players that were on pace for almost 150 points in the OHL have trouble translating to the NHL. And I think Rossi with his physical maturity uh, and I think the, the, the brain that he brings to the game and, and all of the tire pumping that his coach has done for him. I, I think there's all the potential in the world for Rossi to at least take a run at an NHL job this year with Minnesota. And I think the expectations, if you set them kind of low and just say, look, go out and play, I, I think that that could work. Um, Murat at 37, Murat Kuznetinov, I had him ranked un, unbelievably high, I think way too high, but I think that's a guy where if you want to talk about a project pick that's worth letting develop in Russia for the next three or four years and, and letting him grow a little bit, get stronger and more confident and a little bit more dynamic, that's a guy who has all the tools, I think, to be a spectacular hockey player. I mean, he's fast, he's skilled. He's, he's, you know, maybe not the most incredible goal scorer you've ever seen, but he can see plays pretty well. He can make a play really well. Um, he's got a lot of skill and it only comes out. So once in a while, which I kind of wish would come out a little more, he seems to rely on his speed a little bit more than he does, but I think he'll get there. I think, and to get him at 37, I mean, I mean, I look at some of the guys that went in the first round and go, I, I, I would rather have taken a big swing on a Maracas Nadinov than some of these guys who went in the first round, frankly. Um, so I'm a big fan of his. And then two picks later at Ryan O'Rourke. I like Ryan O'Rourke just fine. I think if the first two guys off the board were Rossi and Kuznetinov for my team and the, the bunch of scouts were saying, we need Ryan O'Rourke at 30, 39, I, I wouldn't say no. I think there are areas of his game that I like. I think the areas of his game that I like are the games that are the areas that most people don't really talk about with him. I like his offensive game. I like his ability to stretch the ice up the ice into the neutral zone. I like his ability to step up from the offensive blue line and, and get some chances himself. Um, you know, I think the skating could be worked on, which is something that you can easily work on the pace of his game. He, he can be a bit of a slow decision maker. Um, you know, I think the Sioux Greyhounds were a team that made mistakes, but got away with a lot of mistakes um, but I think that there's a lot of potential for O'Rourke there as well. Damon Hunt, hard to judge because he played barely any games and he played on an absolutely terrible Moose Jaw team, but I like him. I think he's a capable defense first player with some e interesting offensive talent and Pavel Novak, if he can learn how to skate, he has the creativity and the offensive vision to, to really put some plays together. So I think overall they did a great job. I mean, to get Pavel Novak at 146, I took him off my draft list at the end of the year, but if he was there at 146, I, I he would have been the name on he would have been a name on my list that I would have looked at for sure. I want to dig into O'Rourke a little bit more because in some of the conversations that I've had, I get this vibe that people think that he's this stay-at-home defenseman. Mm -hmm. And looking at the data, he projects 
much higher offensively than a lot of other defensemen, certainly CHL defensemen that were drafted this year. And I almost think that that's more of a strength than what a lot of people highlight. Like they see the hits and the, and the fights and the, the willingness to, to be gritty. And you read the stories about how he's a very serious person. You think, oh, defense first, but I don't know that that's necessarily his game. It's not, in my view, at least. I, I don't think it's that way. I think he is, um, he's a really interesting case of that. I think, you know, he's a, he's capable of being a physical defenseman deep in the defensive zone. Like, he'll, pr- he'll project himself onto an opponent if he needs to. Um, but this is a guy who, in my tracking, he made the 21st most pass attempts of any player that I tracked this season. Um, you know, he, of all the players, not just defensemen, but of all the players I tracked, he, in terms of all of the shot attempts his team was taking, he took 27% of those shot attempts himself. And that was 22nd in my data set. For a defenseman to be that high, I think part of me wants to say that that's not ideal. But the way that, you know, he's got a really good wrist shot. It's got some power behind it. I would, you know, he seems to be able to pick his spots well. He steps up from the blue line to shoot the puck well. You know, I think there are areas of his game that certainly need work. His offensive transition metrics are underwhelming, I would say. He plays a lot of defensive transition hockey. He involves himself in those plays really well. But, you know, he's about average in terms of actually preventing control on those transitions. But, again, you're dealing with a player who I think projects as a better, I would say, pass first, step up from the offensive blue line type defenseman who is competent defensively. And I think that that is something that, at, at his age can be hard to find like someone very solid defensively on paper who can play a bit of offense as well. Um, you know, you can look at a guy like Caden Gooley and I see a really high level defensive player there, but there's a lot about his game where I just go, I, I don't, he's defense only. And I don't like players in the draft, especially in the first round that really right now project to be defense only and primarily. So Ryan O'Rourke at 39, I would much rather have than a guy like Caden Gooley at 16 because Ryan O'Rourke brings competent defense, but on paper, his offensive game, at least passing the puck and stepping up from the blue line, that's kind of where he's playing his best. And that's where I really liked seeing him play. Yeah, I think he is trending more towards being a top pairing defenseman than a lot of the defensemen in this draft. And I don't necessarily have the data on the European defenseman the same way that I I would more reliably look at the data on the North American ones. But I I had him uh, like out of the North American defenseman right in my top three. So I I like what they got, what they got there. And I think that if you want a defenseman to be able to play on your top pairing or even your second pairing, like if you want to be top four, if you don't want to just be a third liner and off the glass and out, you got to have, some element of skill and if you're starting without that it doesn't matter what other tools you have you're probably not going to be able to use them Mm -hmm. totally yeah minnesota also reportedly i think this is in elliot friedman's 31 thoughts they tried to trade for florida's first round pick as well and i don't know if they would have taken lindell but I'm just staggered by the thought of that and i really would love to to find out what they could have done there because if you Maybe they probably would have had to give up an asset off their team, or maybe they end up giving up a couple of their picks that we really liked. So maybe that changes the outlook for them. But 
all the same if they end up with a Lundell or a Jarvis in there. That, that would absolutely stagger what this uh, what this draft class looks like for them. Totally. I mean, if that were to have come to fruition, I mean, it all comes down to what it costs. And I have no idea what Florida would have wanted uh, from Minnesota in order to, to, to give them that 12th pick. I mean, Minnesota's kind of starting this shedding of, of, of talent, I guess you could say. Um, maybe there was like a Matt Dumba deal that was in the works or something like that, but I don't know. I don't, I don't want to speculate too much. I mean, if, if Minnesota had the chance to add a, a Lindell or a, a Jarvis or even a Dylan Holloway, that would have been a nice ad for sure. I mean, I think all things considered though, if I'm being bold, I think they ended up with what could be two foundational players for that team, at least maybe three. If O'Rourke, like, I, I don't know if I see a top pair guy out of there, but I could see a world where he's a solid top four puck mover that can play at even strength and, you know, just a guy you don't have to worry about a whole lot, especially when it comes to moving the puck up the ice. So getting those out of your first three picks, and then maybe you have yourself a depth defenseman or a bottom pairing defense first player in Damon Hunt. I think that's a great draft. And then you have a good flyer in, in Pavel Novak. So, you know, patience with, with Kuznodinov being upfront with Rossi and trusting him and sort of letting him make mistakes and learn on the fly. They, they could end up with some great players, I think, out of this draft for sure. And you really liked Winnipeg's draft as well. And I think that, I mean, just sitting back at 10 and getting Cole Perfetti is that, was that one of the easiest picks in the draft, do you think? Yeah, I would say so. <laughs> yeah, it it was right up there. I mean, I can see the issue really with Cole Perfetti. You know, I, I think he's a player who, doesn't have a ton of pace to his game, but I don't think he needs to. I think he's a guy who adapts really well. He can manipulate opponents really, really well, put pucks where they are not, um, you know, navigate the offensive zone really well and distribute pucks really effectively. I really like him. He's a good central conduit player. So defensemen can get pucks to him. He can get pucks to his wingers and he doesn't need to play with the same kind of pace that someone like a Marco Rossi does or or a, 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 even a Jake Sanderson or something or a Lucas Raymond. So I, I look at Cole Perfetti and see a guy who I think is going to be more of an offense-first player. I thought his defensive game was hit or miss, and I'm not sure he projects as a center at the end of the day. I would try him there, but I'm not sure he projects there. But as an offensive player, whether he's a center or a winger, I mean, that's a great ad for the Winnipeg Jets. And I mean, he's got some guys who kind of – remind me of a similar type of player, like guys like Mark Shifley, you know, he's not, he doesn't necessarily have Shifley's sort of build, but that kind of vibe to his game is, is it resonates a little bit. So if Perfetti can sort of be latched onto him and, 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 or latched onto the other high level offensive players that are there, uh, then I think there could be a really interesting player there. I mean, the idea of Cole Perfetti, assuming Patrick Laine sticks around, sending pucks to Patrick Laine is kind of scary, even if it's three years from now. So we'll see what happens, but I thought Perfetti at 10 was a no-brainer pick. Like, you just kind of shut your brain off and just pick the kid. Yeah, I think he is going to be the heir apparent to Blake Wheeler as the playmaking hub of their power play. And mm -hmm. who knows what else comes down the line for them with line A and the team maybe looking at uh, looking at a divorce here and who knows what else they have, but certainly there are still going to be some very strong pieces offensively there in Winnipeg. And I think that they're well positioned to insulate him well. Do you think that he's 
because I've I've heard some suggestions that maybe he could be a player who who gets some run in the NHL this season. I wonder if he he could fit in there right away. I, I mean, I'm not gonna like. I, I think it's possible that he gets a cup of coffee. I'm not sure he, you know, gets the whole pot, but I think he could have a bit. Um, I think it's also really hard to say when you're not on the ice with the guys and not being a part of the team. I, I look at Cole Perfetti. I think his intelligence and his dual threat offense and, you know, the passing vision that he has is, I think, good enough but a big thing that changes from junior to the NHL is just pace and the time it takes to make a decision. Like Cole Perfetti is a guy who likes to hang on to the puck and see the ice and make a, and make a read and, you know, really sort of try to manipulate the opponent into opening up a passing lane and trying to find avenues that way. And there are players in the NHL who do that, but it's going to be a matter of relying on doing that as quickly as possible, making that read and distributing the puck effectively and, and not letting bigger, stronger, you know, more experienced NHL veterans bear down on you, apply pressure, and and really just take your lunch money. So I ha- I think Cole Perfetti is more than good enough to, to learn. I think he might earn himself a couple of games for the Jets this year, but I would – I he's a player where I'm a little bit more concerned than a guy like Marco Rossi with potentially overwhelming him with not only expectations but the level of play in the NHL. I think Marco Rossi's in a bit of a better position because like, who cares? The Minnesota Wild, I don't think anyone are expecting to be Stanley Cup contenders next year with Nick Benino as your number one center. I just don't see how that's going to happen. So, you know, yeah, it's going to be great having Kirill Kaprizov, but Marco Rossi's a guy who you can just throw out there and say, you know, if you if you frame things the right way, I think you, you could have a really interesting season out of him where he learns a lot and, and all those things. Whereas with Perfetti, the Winnipeg Jets are kind of in a situation where you know, they're going to need to start putting something together. You know, they've got Connor Hellebuck locked up. They've got Blake Wheeler locked up. They, You know, they're trying to deal with Patrick Laine. They have the players there. And so if Perfetti needs to go back to Saginaw for another year, I don't see that as too much of a negative. Um, but certainly I think the, the talent overall is worth at least a little bit of a look in the NHL. But I, I don't expect him to be a full season player. And what about the rest of Winnipeg's draft? What did you really like about it? Well, I think Daniel Torgerson is just going to play. I, 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 I think he's a guy who, you know, what I like about him is that I can see his future now. You know, he's a big dude. He can skate pretty well for someone his size. He's got good skill for someone his size. Uh, I, I, I think I would have rather, if you're looking at a big player with skill, I would have probably rather looked at Brandon Coe. But Daniel Torgerson is a player who I think there is an NHL trajectory you can see now. I really, really like how he is when he's deep in the offensive zone. I think if he's a player where the expectation is you don't rely on him to be a primary transition player, like give him the puck in the defensive end and he goes end to end and makes all these creative plays in the neutral zone and cuts through opponents and uses his size that way. I see him as a guy who you know, he's a puck touch guy in the neutral zone. Just get the puck to someone more mobile, be the trailing forward, get to the, get to the front of the net and just get the dirty plays around the net as much as you can, whether it's fetching pucks below the goal line, you know, grinding the play out from there. He has really interesting talent in that area of the game and he can put pucks out in front creatively. He can get dangerous chances himself. He's got good finishing ability. So I think is like a bottom six or middle six sort of physical 
power winger who can get to the net and just bang in a couple of goals and just chip in offensively that way. I can absolutely see the value in a Daniel Torgerson 40th overall. Yeah. I mean, I might've looked at maybe trading back a little bit, but I don't think Torgerson was going to last much longer than 40th. I feel like you've described uh, Patrick Maroon. You know what? Yeah. And everyone seems to love Patrick Maroon and getting a player like that, I think is, is at least some level of value. Um, I think Torgerson is just, you know, he's got some really interesting talent in terms of around deep in front, deep in the offensive zone in front of the net. Um, and he's capable elsewhere, but I think he's best served as that kind of a role player. Anton Johannesson, I had him ranked higher than Torgerson quite a bit higher. I look at Johannesson and see an absolute enigma. I mean, I'm looking at the guys that I tracked this year. I think he was 30% more active when it comes to attempting passes than anyone else I tracked all year. Uh, you know, he is more than willing to use passing to open up the ice. He's more than willing to stretch passing up the ice to, to sort of get play into the neutral zone and into the offensive zone. Um, you know, just a really smart and, and crafty offensive defenseman. I think his ability at the offensive blue line is also really underrated, really good playmaker off the blue line, knows how to spot guys around the ice, knows how to step up from the offensive blue line. He's really small, definitely has small people problems where he's deep in the defensive zone and getting outworked and outmuscled constantly. He's had injury problems, but, you know, when I look at him and his profile from what I tracked, he relinquishes a lot more dangerous chances against than you'd like, but it's still beaten by the offense that he generates. I mean, comparing him and Emil Andre, I, I find it hard to come to the, to not come to the conclusion that Emil Andre in some areas is made a lot better by Anton Johannesson's play. Will it project? I don't know. I think there's a very strong chance he never plays an NHL game and is stuck in Sweden for the rest of his career. But I mean, if he can get a bit better on his feet, a lot stronger on his frame, work on his mobility to be a bit quicker on his edges and a bit quicker generating speed, straight line skating. I think, I think there's a lot to like with Anton Johannesson, especially with how he sees the ice and the way he can generate off the blue line in the offensive zone is remarkable. Um, So to get him where they got him is a great flyer to take. You know, if you whiff on your 133rd pick, you may as well make it a player like Anton Johannesson. And if he can buck the trend and become that sort of next version of Jared Spurgeon, then the Winnipeg Jets look like geniuses to me. Oh, Jared Spurgeon, that uh, that would be quite the get. Um, That's a big if. I will yeah. I will say that. <laughs> yeah. It's a big yeah. if. It's like a 1% chance, but my God, if it pays off. For the Jets, yes. Um, the cup favorites, the Colorado Avalanche, what did you think about their draft? I would say they were one of those teams that were pretty up and down. Um, I, I look at the Colorado Avalanche, and I mean, their first round pick to me, I didn't have Justin Barron ranked. I tracked him a lot and I saw a defenseman who didn't do a very good job shutting down danger in front of the net. Um, Maybe his injuries were hampering him. I don't know. I hope that's what the case was. Um, But interestingly enough, I mean, they drafted a guy at 75 that I would have considered at 25, which was Jean-Luc Foodie. That would have been a big reach at 25, but I would have listened to the argument to take him. I I really like Jean-Luc Foodie. I think what he brings to the game is really unique. It's hard to find. Um, he's really raw. He's going to need work. There are things about his game that you just really hate. But the fundamental tools for him, if you're going to swing on anyone at 75th overall, I mean, I was sad that he fell out of the second round, but I didn't expect him to be drafted very high. 
I think that a lot of people focus on his downsides and not what makes him special. And what makes him special is something that you desperately, desperately need in the NHL, which is fast puck control centers who can get the puck out of his own zone and into the offensive zone. And that's what he did every single time I tracked him. So I like that pick. I really don't mind it whatsoever. It definitely is riskier, but you know, I, I don't mind it. And Ambrosio and Rolston, I'm a fan of Ambrosio, especially at 118. That's not a crazily insane pick. Good goal scorer, but not super consistent at five on five in terms of his impact on the game. Really passive, but again, he's a good skater. He covers ice really well. He's fast in a straight line. Um, some good skill from here from time to time, uh, opening up passing lanes and getting shots off. I I would have I would have been interested in having the discussion to take him around that range. I think he's a bit of a project in terms of getting him more consistent and really using the talent that he that he shows flashes of. Ryder Rolston, I mean, I liked him with the uh, national development program, but with Waterloo, I just didn't. I saw a kid who just didn't really develop that much. I mean, I think Colorado was buying low on that and saying, well, maybe he just had a bad year. Maybe the switch away from the program with the USNTDP wasn't really the right move or wasn't the best move for him. And maybe there's something there that he can unlock in college. I don't know. Um, and Neil Soman at 167, I actually saw him a few times when I was tracking Emil Haneman. I mean, he's, he's a smart center. He's older for the draft class, but I don't, I don't hate that pick. I think he, you know, drove play reasonably well from what I saw. I saw him in a couple of SHL games and, you know, good, good sort of puck distributing center for, for a guy that had some games at the, uh, at the men's level. I don't expect a tremendous amount out of him, but I think he deserved him a uh, deserved a flyer at some point late, but not a guy I would have been clamoring for. I'm definitely interested in Jean-Luc Foudy more than anyone else they drafted. Uh, Justin Barron, I wouldn't be surprised if he underwhelms, but we'll see. I mean, I'm not going to question Joe Sackick really. I'm, no, I'm in no position to do so. Um, but the rest of that draft, I mean, will they're 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 projects for sure. I feel like with Foodie, we're going to see him appear in the playoffs in like three or four years. And he's just going to be another one of those avalanche players that's absolutely flying up and down the ice. And you're like, where do they keep finding these kids? Yeah, I can totally see it. I mean, I look at what Jean-Luc Foodie does and go, I want guys on my team that can do what he does. Like, it's that simple to me. And it's, and, and you, the questions that I have about his defensive play really come down to just work rate. Like when the puck is in the defensive zone, he's really passive and not really in pursuit very often waiting kind of up near the blue line, kind of hoping that the rest of the guys on his team are going to grab that puck and get the puck to him, which I think is tolerable for junior level hockey. But once he gets to the NHL, he's going to need to be more engaged, I think, but he has, but the thing that goes in his favor is there's speed there and acceleration at the same time. Like when he gets that puck back, he's off and he's gone. So if that can happen more often where, you know, he's involved defensively, I can definitely see the, 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 the project there. A lot of people also question his offensive decision-making, but frankly, I look at the guys he was playing with a lot of the time and go, if I'm Jean-Luc Foudy, I'm holding onto that puck as long as I possibly can too. Cause I don't, I don't really trust Curtis Douglas or Will Cully to, to be those finesse finishers that are playing on my line to, to finish what I'm setting up. Nobody in my tracking tried as many dangerous pass attempts as Foodie did and completed as many passes on average that Foodie did. So he's a guy who was doing things that I really look for a lot of the time and things that I, I think anyone should be looking for 
offensive transitions and sending pucks into dangerous areas. I think he does those things better than almost everyone in the draft. He's at least comparable to guys like Cole Perfetti and Marco Rossi in those respects. So I don't see an issue at 75 with that pick whatsoever. Well, and with Foodie, in the OHL, he's being relied on as the main offensive contributor. And when he gets to the NHL, that's not even going to be close to true, right? Like, Mm -hmm. best case scenario, he ends up on a second line, but odds are he's playing third or fourth line. And the coach is like, you don't play if you aren't dialed in defensively. So he's going to have to be aggressive in the defensive zone. And as soon as he gets that, it's going to be pucks going the other way with speed, maybe odd man chance just because of that speed. And now you've got a fourth line that's outscoring the other team's fourth line. Yeah. Yeah. I can totally see that. I mean, maybe he's a guy who also you throw it on your power play and just say, you know, you're, you're technically in that defense slot, you know, you're the quarterback, you know, you get the puck and you're carrying it. Maybe that's another role for him, but I, I just really like that pick. I think with Colorado, they, they ended up with a good player for sure. Yeah. There's some fascinating tools there. Maybe we'll, uh, we'll race through the last three sure. teams here so that we can let you go on time. Uh, the Chicago Blackhawks are going through what looks like a fully solidified rebuild that uh, their stars aren't happy with, but uh, do you think they did well enough in the draft here to fuel that rebuild? Um. I think they did fine. Again, another one of those teams that I think is about middle of the pack. I mean, I look at Lucas Reichel. I had him ranked at 19th. So to see him go 17, it was a little high, even considering like what I saw out of him. But uh, what I saw, I really liked. I, I am a fan of Lucas Reichel. I think there were bigger swings they could have taken that, that might be more impactful players down the road. But Lucas Reichel, I think, is a guy who's just going to produce points. He, he knows how to find open ice in the offensive zone from what I saw. He, he can definitely, he, I think was the number one player I tracked all year in terms of generating dangerous chances from high danger. So I'm just going to look him up here in my database, but I mean, he looked really impressive in a lot of different areas. Yeah. He was the number one player at generating both high danger and high and medium danger chances per 60 minutes when he was on the ice. And that was against men. So he's very young. He was a rookie playing against men. He drove a lot of really good possession, um, you know, top 10 in both driving dangerous shot attempts for and suppressing dangerous shot attempts against. I mean, there's a lot to like with Lucas Reichel. So I, I think that at 17, it's a really good gamble to take. He's a very talented guy. I think he could be one of the better complementary offense leaning players that come out of this draft, at least not that didn't, that didn't go in the top 10. Like, would I have taken a Lucas Reichel over a Jack Quinn? there's an argument to be made that I would have, that I would have had that discussion for sure. Um, I really like what he brings to the game. Uh, beyond that, I mean, Drew Comezzo at 46, if you get your goalie, I guess it doesn't really matter where you take him. It's your goalie. Can he stop pucks this yeah. season? <laughs> he did, right? Like he, he was capable. Um, you know, no, I mean, I... in the NHL, cause they don't have a oh, goalie. <laughs> yeah, that's true. They're well, future problem, right? <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, you look at the guys that were on the board there. I mean, would you, if you really liked the goalie and you knew you weren't going to get him, would you pass on guys like Jan Mishak, Ronnie Hirvonen, Topi Nimala, Kasper Simontaival? You know, would you pass on those guys to to take a goalie if you really liked them? I I could see how that would happen. Um, you know, I I don't know about Drew Comezzo. I 
think he's okay from what I've seen, but goalies are weird. They take some time. And if my goalie guy was like, no, we need this kid. He's going to fit. He's great. I'll, I'll say, all right, I'll, I'll trust you on it, but you know, maybe give me the pick of, of someone we take in the later rounds. Um, but I, I look at, I look at what Chicago got outside and there's a lot of flyers. I think um, that's the big thing that I came away with. I mean, Landon Slaggart didn't show a ton this year, but I like his potential. I like his mobility. I like his ability to get up the ice um, with control of the puck. There was, he's one of those glitter players. Like you said, he, he's that guy that I would watch the NTDP and go, who's that guy? And a lot of the time it was Landon Slaggart or Dylan Peterson. Um, but those two guys, I think, had trouble putting something together in the offensive zone, which is a tough thing to learn, I think. But the tools are there for them to be something bigger. Beyond that, big flyer on Wyatt Kaiser. I'm not a huge guy. I'm not a huge Kaiser fan, but I'll take a swing on a defenseman who can skate like he can uh, and, and hope for the best. And Crudel, Phillips, Crevier, I, I think they're interesting picks. I know there are people who really like Crudel. I haven't seen a ton of them, so I can't give you a detailed look at him. And Chad Yetman, I don't know. He's a guy. I, I probably wouldn't have picked him off the Otters this year. I like Maxime Gallaud. I like Brandon Hoffman. But he he put up some interesting numbers, and we'll we'll see what happens, I suppose. With Lucas Reichel, I really – I like the player that you described there as a fit with some of the finishers that they have on that team. Yep, totally. I can totally see a good finisher there. Decent transition player too, but I would say not something I think is going to be a focal point of his game. You know, his defensive game, I think will need to be shored up, but, but in terms of offense and and knowing what to do in the offensive zone, he's got a lot of nice tools to work with. Now, what about the Dallas stars? They've, it's taken some of their prospects a really long time to develop, but it seems like they finally came through for them on this magical run that they went on. And that lands them the 30th overall pick, and they take a player that I think has first line potential in Maverick Bork, but I'm wondering what you think there. Yeah, I I, I had Maverick Bork ranked 15th. Um, to get him at 30th for a team that just lost the Stanley Cup, I mean, that's a pretty good consolation prize. I think Maverick Bork is one of the smartest offensive centers available. He's just so crafty. Just when you think you have him beat along the boards or something, he finds a way to get out of that situation and put a puck in front of the net. It's It's incredible, really. I, I think he's got a really high level brain for playing offensively defensively. I think you're going to similar to a guy like foodie. You're going to wish there was a little bit more some of the time, but I mean, again, he drives offense really, really well. He drives transitions really, really well. Uh, and to get him at 30th. I mean, I look at the guys that went off the board after the 20th overall pick, if I'm Dallas and I'm having a laugh because Maverick Bork is still available um, outside of Bork in that first round. I liked their draft. I thought Antonio Strange is at 123. I mean, I, I didn't have him on my list. I don't think he's very projectable, but he's got skill. His offensive generation that I tracked was actually pretty good, but basically everything else was almost non-existent. So if they can form a player around that positive, then maybe there's something there. And the rest of them, I really like Oksentiuk. I think he's an interesting pickup. Daniel Leungman, he's hit the ground running this year, scoring a ton of goals, and he's a good attacking winger. You know, he, sorry, not a winger, but he's a forward who kind of bounces around from what I remember. He attacks the net really well. He's got good goal-scoring instincts. He's got good skill. Um, and and I, don't, I don't know if there's enough there consistently to project him as an NHL player, but once in a while, he'll pull off some stuff where you go, oh, okay, like this guy's legit, and he knows how to navigate three defensemen really well. So there might be something there as well. So I think they took a couple of big swings on some high skill, high offense leaning guys. 
Um, and Maverick Bork, I mean, he could, I could easily see him be a, a second line center for the Dallas stars uh, for, for a while. I mean, they have guys like Tyler Sagan who I remember had defensive concerns when he was draft eligible. And, you know, he's a guy who can make a play out of nothing really. And just such a clever and creative player and smart offensively. So Maverick Bork, I think is in, a, is in the right spot. It's a good team for him to go to. And I think, uh, I think they got a really good player there. So if we really like what the stars did getting Maverick Bork at 30, then we probably don't love what St. Louis took in the twenties with Jake neighbors, which it felt like a Boston Bruins pick. Yeah. So the, the blues, they had a day, um, you know, Jake neighbors is a guy who I think is very much a different player than what I think he thinks he is I don't I know that that that's very I want to say rude of me but very presumptive of me to get inside his head and see what he's thinking but he seems to be a guy that brings a lot of finesse and skill to the game that at least for him like to him he brings that but what it comes out as is I see this guy as a decent energy player I think he could be a good bottom six energy winger um you know he's got decent offensive ability he can he's got some skill but his straight line speed is kind of where his skating starts and stops. He's not the most agile guy. Defensive transitions for me at times were like miserable, just skating in a straight line and not really adapting to being shaken off of by a four checker. I just, I just don't really, at 26, I don't see the argument there. I had him ranked at the end of the second round. I know some people didn't even have him ranked. Um, I'm not that negative on him. And I think there's a salvageable bottom six guy there. But in terms of being this top six scoring winger with tremendous offensive finesse, I don't, I don't think there's enough there, but I mean, it's still early and there's lots of time to develop. I just think that he's a player who might need to kind of, he might be a guy who they try to develop into a skilled player, but then over time realizes that he's probably better served for straight line energy play and chipping in offensively. And to pass on some more dynamic offensive talent in favor of Jake neighbors, I think makes me think the St. Louis blues are thinking we won the Stanley cup playing like Jake neighbors plays, but without really thinking like we just need really good offensive players that are capable of playing like Jake neighbors. And I'm not sure at the NHL level that Jake neighbors is that player outside of that. Dylan Peterson is a big swing. I think it's a big, we'll see kind of situation. I love his size and skill combination, but the rest, I, I just don't know if there's enough. He doesn't seem to know how to make a play. He seems to have his head down a lot and not really reading the play as it goes on around him. Leo Loof, I don't know. I, I didn't really expect him to be drafted, especially not that high. Tanner Dickinson, I he's fine from what I've seen. He's a guy who I didn't have ranked. I had to go back and watch. Matt Kessel, same thing. I didn't think he was worth a pick, but... Again, St. Louis seems to know their NCAA guys. They got Perunovic, and he, he's been going well. Will Cranley is a goalie, so you can't judge that right now. And Noah Beck was a guy who, when I looked at the tape after him being drafted, I don't get it. I don't see what St. Louis sees. I, I don't. I tried. I don't know. I mean, there were much better players that went undrafted, uh, especially first-time draft eligibles, let alone players that were passed over last year. So maybe the St. Louis Blues have found some gems here. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know, but I look at their draft overall and go, I think they're going to get a player out of it. And I don't think that player is going to be very impactful. Maybe Dylan Peterson can unlock his potential and he can turn into maybe a middle six center one day. But 
I, I'm not holding my breath on, on most of the guys they picked. Will, this was fantastic. There's so much for us to go over with a fine tooth comb. I can't wait to dive into your whole draft day stream because I think that that's going to be even more of a deep dive. I think folks need to check that out. Mm -hmm. uh, scouching over on YouTube. What else do you want the folks to check out? Uh, yeah, you can also follow me on Twitter at Scouching. Uh, there's also a Patreon if you would like to directly financially support what I do. Anything helps. It gets me to uh, doing this more, taking more of my time to do it. Um, but yeah, it's it's all in good fun. It's a, it's a great project to be a part of. I'm happy to provide the service. Um, but yeah, Twitter and YouTube are the big, big ones to start with. And then anything beyond that is, is, is all up to you. Um, but yeah, those are the, those are the big ones. And, uh, I'm glad, I'm glad it's well received. Absolutely. You're, you're doing fantastic work and I can't, uh, I can't trumpet it enough. Uh, oh, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on and making some time for us here. Anytime. All right, everyone. That's our show. If you like it, please like subscribe and review wherever you get your podcasts. If you're looking for more content from me, I went on the Dauber Prospects radio show last week to talk about uh, fantasy draft that Pete and I participated in. So if you're looking for fantasy hockey content, you can find that from me there. Otherwise, have yourself an excellent week and hopefully we'll have some more content for you then.